Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September 2016. The following presentation is by Chris Payne, author of the excellent book The Chieftain, Victorian True Crime Through the Eyes of a Scotland Yard Detective which is about Detective Chief Inspector George Clark. As with all of the talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from all of the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 151. And I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel and Chris Payne. Some of the cases he worked on, so please can we have a warm welcome for Chris Payne. Thank you very much for the introduction and for inviting me. It's often stated that the main factor in the establishment of the CID was the 1877 trial of detectives in which corruption was revealed within the Scotland Yard Detective Department. One of the men in the dock was my great-great-grandfather, George Clark. I only discovered this in 2007. The family didn't talk about these sorts of things. (laughs) And I decided to research his career and today I'd like to describe the operation of Scotland Yard's detective department and the trial of the detectives through his experiences. George Clark retired before the onset of the murders attributed to Jack the Ripper. However, he was a senior colleague of some of the Metropolitan Police officers who were later involved in the Ripper investigations. George Clark fortunate to uh, recently discover a photograph of him, was born in 1818 in a village near Royston, Hertfordshire. His family were not entirely paragons of virtue. Clark's mother had some experience of the law as she was convicted and fined for a weights and measures offence and two of her brothers were sentenced to transportation, though they never seemed to have set sail for Australia, serving their sentences on various hulks. There were at least 10 children in the Clark family. Three of them joined the Metropolitan Police. George Clark was the first to join, April 6, 1840, aged 21. He just made the minimum entry height at that time of five foot seven inches. He spent the next 13 years as a constable in S Division, Hampstead, followed by a further nine years as a sergeant in the same division. Thus he had 22 years experience in uniform before transferring to Scotland Yard in May 1862. I don't know precisely why he was selected to join the small team of detectives at Scotland Yard, which numbered 10, only 10 in those days. And he was appointed initially as a temporary uh, detective sergeant. They were all based at Scotland Yard, the detectives at that time. It's probable, I think, that he received a recommendation from either his divisional superintendent or one of the existing Scotland Yard detectives 
the most likely being Sergeant Adolphus Dolly Williamson. And within six months of his appointment, uh, Clark's position as Detective Sergeant was made permanent. And by that time, Dolly Williamson, who was 11 years younger than, 13 years younger than Clark, had been promoted to Detective Inspector. Clark's promotion was more rapid as a detective than as a uniformed officer. Under initially Commissioner Maine, he was promoted to Inspector in 1867, and shortly after Commissioner Henderson took charge in 1869, Clark became Chief Inspector, and in fact second in command in the detective department behind the by then Superintendent Williamson. I don't have time today to go into detail about many of the individual cases that Clark investigated as a detective, but I'll touch on a few by way of illustration of his career and to provide something of the background behind his appearance at the Old Bailey dock in 1877. The main cases he investigated, including several murders or suspicious deaths that hit the national headlines. Oops, sorry. Uh, can we go back to that slide? Thanks very much. <clears throat> also dealt with matters of national security, which I'll mention in passing, such as the Fenian conspiracy, and cases involving major fraud, most no notably the Tichborne claimant case and various betting frauds, which will concentrate on the second half of my talk. Clark's first major case after joining Scotland Yard was the murder of Thomas Briggs in 1864. Well-known case, the first murder to take place on a British train. In the investigation, he worked alongside his younger but more senior colleague, Inspector Dick Tanner. And when it was realized that the prime suspect, a tailor of German origin named Franz Muller, had left the country on a sailing ship headed for America, Clark and Tanner boarded this steamship from Liverpool, taking two principal witnesses with them in a successful attempt to get to New York ahead of Muller. It was Clark who, with a New York uh, police sergeant, probably rode in a boat like this to arrest Muller. Muller was unaware, fortunately, no, there had been no ship-to-shore radio or tele telegraph systems to uh, uh, alert him in advance. Clark then explored the murder uh, the Muller's trunk and found the murder victim's watch and hat, albeit the hat had been modified, uh, modified slightly, probably by Muller himself, who was a tailor by trade. <coughs> On his return to London, Clark probably had no time to join the 50,000 people who watched Muller's hanging outside Newgate, as he was already working on his next murder inquiry, a headless corpse whose remains had been found on the Plasto marshes and taken to the nearest dead house, the Graving Dock Tavern. Um, that's a modern map locating the uh, pub, which I don't think exists anymore, but it was in a, a, a modern semi-detached type of version, still around uh, probably 20, 30 years ago. The headless corpse 
at the which had uh, been found in located within K Division. The superintendent of K Division asked quickly and quickly locked up a suspect, and Clark was called in from Scotland Yard to locate the evidence necessary to bring the murder charge. And this involved identifying the corpse, establishing the motive, providing the necessary proof. And all these objectives were quickly achieved. The victim was a recently arrived young German called Theodor Furop, who lodged with the murder suspect, Ferdinand Cole. Cloaklock located the probable murder weapon, obtained evidence that the two men had been seen together on the marshes on the likely day of the murder, and established that Cole had subsequently pawned some of Furop's clothes to raise some desperately needed cash. At the time, the Treasury Solicitor's Office was the government agency closest in its responsibilities to the future, then future Department of Public Prosecutions, and it had responsibility for bringing prosecution on cases of national importance. And it was the Treasury Office that asked Commissioner Maine for help in obtaining confirmation from Furop's relatives and other witnesses in Germany that the pawn possessions had indeed belonged to the murder victim. Maine delegated that task to Sergeant Clark, and in late December 1864, Clark headed off to Germany with a trunk load of the murder victim's possessions that had been redeemed from various pawn shops in the East End. And he returned to the UK shortly after Christmas, bringing with him the victim's brother and confirmation that the pawn possessions were indeed those of Theodore Furop. Evidence collecting in some considerable detail and effort involved that man might not have expected around that particular time. Ferdinand Cole was convicted of the murder and was actually the last person to be hung in public outside Chelmsford Prison. Clark received a small monetary reward from the Treasury's Solicitor's Office and it was the start for him of a close working relationship, which I will return to. And one reason why uh, Clark had a successful relationship with that organisation um, and they, at, at, at a later time, when he was really under pressure in the trial of the detectives, had no reason to suspect him of corrupt practices. However, the Plasto Marshes murder investigation also provided an illustration of a running sore in the detective department at that time the matter of expenses. An unbelievable bit of luck at the National Archives, um, I discovered Clark's expenses claim for his trip to Germany. The reason why it had been saved in the archives is because the chief clerk at Scotland Yard had queried it. <laughs> because when Clark sought to recover his expenses for his trip to Germany, some questions were raised about some items claimed, particularly payments to informants. Clark had had to interview um, uh, several German witnesses on Christmas Day and had had to make payments, or so he said, um, and we have to, uh, on the day, to, to those witnesses. The issue of such payments seems to have been a considerable problem at Scotland Yard, 
1877, or 10 years, 12 years later, no less person than Adolphus Williamson commented, I'm perfectly certain that men often will not put down items of expenses because they know they'll be disputed and they would rather lose money than enter into a dispute upon them. I consider it most unfair. And a future colleague of Clark's, John Michael John, commented also in his uh, biography, I was left to whistle even for my out-of-pocket expenses. It was always thus. As we'll see later, Michael John at least found a way of overcoming his cash flow problems, albeit an illegal one. Between 1865 and 1868, the potential danger of Irish republicanism and terrorism became a prominent issue that most Scotland Yard detectives were involved with, and though in, and, and, uh, though in some secrecy. And during this period, Clark and most of the other detectives featured little in the newspapers, as they were often operating covertly and frequently outside London. Clark was commonly in Manchester, Liverpool, and Ireland during this period. The table in this slide from police orders uh, highlights payments made to detectives who worked outside London during the Fenian conspiracy. I hope, uh, and uh, Clark received the uh, second largest sum of money, indicating a lot of active work outside London. Williamson got the, uh, got the most payment for these uh, additional uh, responsibilities. Amongst these names there are also uh, feature uh, people who feature in the remainder of my talk including uh, the three other detectives who would sit with Clark in the dock in 1877. Nathaniel Druskovich is on the list who being multilingual was frequently sent to Paris to observe exiled Fenians. John Michael John and William Palmer were also involved. And the future superintendent of the ENF divisions, James Jacob Thompson, who I'll talk about in a little in a moment, was also involved. During the Fenian conspiracy, George Clark and James Thompson had done their careers no harm by making a couple of significant arrests. Firstly, Clark arrested Octave Fariola, Fenian Chief of Staff in Regent Street in July 1867. And in November 1867, Thompson arrested the Fenian arms organiser, Richard Burke, in a London street. It is reasonable to assume that both Fenians were armed and dangerous at the time. Failed but explosive attempts by other Fenians to rescue Burke from the Clerkenwell House of Detention led to substantial death and injury in the Clerkenwell explosion. And Maine and the Metropolitan Police came in for serious criticism at that time for failing to prevent that event. By early 1869, and now under a new commissioner, Henderson, both Thompson and Clark were promoted to Chief Inspector at Scotland Yard and Williamson to Superintendent at a time when significant changes were made in the organisation of detectives. Henderson decided at Scotland Yard with Home Office approval 
to increase the number of detectives at Scotland Yard from then 15 to 27. But the most radical change was the establishment of a divisional detective system in which a detective sergeant and a number of detective constables were permanently stationed in each division. A total of 20 detective sergeants and 160 detective constables across the metropolitan area. And much to Williamson's concern, these divisional detectives were placed under the management of the divisional superintendents rather than the Scotland Yard Detective Department. A few weeks later, James Jacob Thompson, only 32 years old at the time, moved out of the Scotland Yard Detective Department and became superintendent of a merged ENF division based at Hogan. Thompson's approach to his new responsibilities soon illustrated the validity of Williamson's concerns that crime detection in the Metropolitan Police should come under Scotland Yard management rather than being delegated to divisional superintendents, even ones who've been detectives themselves in the past. After he joined E-Division, there are several examples where Thompson excluded his former Scotland Yard colleagues and failed to use his divisional detectives successfully. The first case this occurred was on the morning of Christmas Day 1872 when Harriet Buswell, a, 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 a prostitute, was found with a throat cut in her bed at 4 Great Coram Street. Witnesses had seen her having dinner with a man the night before and catching a horse-drawn horn -drawn tram with him to the house where she was found dead. A description of the man was prepared and issued in the poster. It was sent around the country and to several European ports and police forces as it was suspected that he was of German origin. As usual, reports came in from all directions and though inundated, Thompson requested no help from Scotland Yard, consistent with his somewhat dismissive attitude, and I quote his own words, I rely upon my men for my cases, and if someone comes from Scotland Yard to investigate a case, I make my people do their utmost before anyone comes. It wasn't long before the newspapers highlighted their disappointment at the conduct of the Buswell murder inquiry. However, in mid-January, Thompson received a report of a German named Voleba arrested in Ramsgate, who apparently matched the wanted man's description. Voleba had been a passenger on a German ship which had run aground on Goodwin Sands and towed off and taken to Ramsgate for repairs. And Thompson and his men hastened to Ramsgate together with several key witnesses. He set up a makeshift identity parade using Voleba and several of the ship's passengers, including a chaplain, the ship's chaplain, Dr. Gottfried Hessel. None of the witnesses selected Voleba as the person at seen accompanying Harriet Buswell. However, several of them picked out the chaplain <laughs> as being the man. Though there was no other evidence against him, um, Thompson arrested Hessel, transported him to Bro Street where he was remanded in custody for a week to allow Thompson more time for his investigations. And by the next hearing, some of the witnesses had retracted their, identif uh, their identification. Hessel was also not a close fit to the murder poster description, 
but he had been in London at the time of the murder. However, with a good lawyer and a magistrate irritated by the ineffective police investigation, Hessel was discharged and the case was never solved. National newspapers had a field day, including the comment, and I quote, the system of employing the regular divisional police at the outset of every case and only referring to Scotland Yard and calling in the skilled detectives after the division has failed to em is failed is eminently calculated to ensure the failure of discovery. However, it will be several years before that situation was readdressed. Back at Scotland Yard from 1869 onwards, George Clark was increasingly deployed in a more strategic role by Commissioner Henderson and the Treasury Solicitor's Office, tackling major crimes of national importance. Between 1872 and 1874, he led investigations into the Titchborn Claimant, this man here, who was supposed to look like this man there, <laughs> who for those unfamiliar with the case was arrested and tried for perjury after he had indeed claimed, returned from Australia and claimed to have been Sir Roger Titchborne, heir to the Titchborne estate and somebody who'd previously been thought to have died at sea off Rio de Janeiro. When the claimant perjury trial was faced with a defence witness, Jean-Louis, who gave evidence that he'd helped rescue the claimant from the sea off Rio de Janeiro and nursed him back to health, this came as a great surprise to and considerable concern to the prosecution. However, it was Clark who discovered that Louis, also known as Carl Lundgren, had actually been working at Hull when he claimed to have been in the South Atlantic and was in fact a ticket of leave man recently released from Chatham Prison. Lundgren uh, himself was later tried and sentenced to seven years penal servitude for perjury and the claimant was sentenced to 14 years. On his release, Lundgren, boxed here, appeared on one of the first published CID posters of habitual criminals that you can spot in the National Archives. In between such high-profile cases, Clark had spent a significant proportion of the previous few years investigating and closing down illegal betting operations in close collaboration with the Treasury Solicitor's Office. And it was this component of his work that was to lead him into the Old Bailey Dock in 1877. As part of their regular activities, Scotland Yard police attended race meetings to discourage criminal activity at these well-attended uh, public events, particularly the Epsom Derby, where there's a somewhat dishevelled uh, sort of constable without helmet in one of the uh, mobs gathering there in that particular painting. Clark was a regular member amongst the Plain Crow Brigade that turned up to these events and was often in charge of those detectives attending such. He became well acquainted with the betting scheme uh, scene associated with horse racing 
and in the absence of uh, digital cameras, it also seems that he took with him at least one detective sergeant, uh, George Greenham, who may have, some of you may have come across, able to artistically record the relevant evidence. <laughs> this is a rel um, uh, one of his original drawings um, at Epsom of a dodgy uh, betting booth. As betting operations were... Yes, sorry. After the general election of 1868 brought in the Gladstone-led administration, the Home Office decided to clamp down on illegal betting houses, and investigations were led by Clark. He started in 1869, and frankly it wasn't a pleasant job if you wanted to win a popularity contest amongst working men who enjoyed a flutter. However, Clark managed a number of a substantial number of uh, successful uh, prosecutions, which some of you hopefully can uh, see down this right-hand side. As betting operations were closed down or driven underground, there was an increase in betting promotions that involved criminally fraudulent scams, often targeted overseas. And one such was the General Society for the Assurance of Losses on the Turf. Its organisers informed their plausible foreign target audiences in Russia and elsewhere in Europe that there was a way to invest in a British-based betting scheme that would guarantee that investors would never lose their money. Where have you heard that before? In February 1875, Clark arrested two men, William Walters being one of these, and a guy called Edwin Murray, for fraud associated with the scheme. Walters had previously been convicted of betting offences uh, in earlier years through Clark's investigation, but Walters had also offered his services to Clark as an informant, and there had been correspondence and at least one meeting between Clark and Walters uh, in this role. Walters and Murray were committed for trial at the Old Bailey, but contrary to Clark's recommendation were allowed bail, and they absconded to the United States. A man called Kerr, please remember that name, who was believed to be associated with the fraud, also evaded arrest. And during Clark's investigations of this gang, um, a mysterious Mr. Young, a cripple living in the Isle of Wight, contacted Clark and offered information about the case. And when Clark visited him, Young offered Clark money if he would ensure that Young would not be required to attend court to give evidence. Clark refused to accept money, reported back to Williamson that Young was, and I quote, an infernal scoundrel, but that his evidence might nonetheless be useful. Eighteen months later, information was to reveal that Young was in fact a convicted fraudster whose real name was Harry Benson and an associate of a man called William Kerr. The two men, Benson and Kerr, would soon become Clark's nemesis. After a spell living on the proceeds of earlier scams, Kerr and Benson implemented a new scam in August 1876 that became known as the Great Turf Swindle. It was aimed again at foreign ignorance of the British racing scheme and the scam targeted French investors and involved a team of four men, shown here, all with several aliases to make life difficult for the police in days before fingerprinting, let alone DNA profiling. 
one French punter. Uh, sorry, I'll go back. Can, yeah. One French punter, the Comtesse de Goncourt, invested £10,000, roughly equivalent to £400,000 today, before realising that she'd been conned, but then sought revenge. Her solicitors chased the Metropolitan Police to pursue inquiries. Nathaniel Druskovich, who unlike Clark spoke French fluently, was put in charge of the inquiry by Williamson. And in addition, during 1876, Clark was very busy leading investigations into the suspicious death of Charles Bravo, that some of you may have heard about, and murders involving a suspected serial killer, Henri de Tourville. Nonetheless, when Williamson went on holiday in early October 1876, Clark was left in charge of the de detective department, as usual. And during this time, Druskovich was slow to make progress, and little happened, in fact, until Williamson returned from leave. By then, evidence was starting to emerge that at least two Scotland Yard detectives, namely Inspector Michael John and Chief Inspector Palmer, had apparently been aiding the turf fraud gang to escape capture. In addition, Druskovich's slow progress on the case was beginning to look suspicious. As we now know, Michael John in particular was in the pocket of the fraudsters and appears to have been so since 1874 at the, at the latest. In fact, following a tip-off from one of his contacts, it was Clark who made the first arrest connected to the fraud of a fifth man, Edwin Murray, remember him, he was one of the ones who absconded to the States, who'd been brought in by William Kerr at a late stage to help launder money raised by the fraud. Scotland Yard had by now also issued a wanted poster in the UK and overseas, which soon led to the arrest of uh, Benson, on the top right there, and the other partners in crime, Frederick Kerr and Charles Bale. Charles Bale, who has my favourite ever alias, Jerry the Greengrocer. <laughs> William Kerr was arrested in a chase in London in which Kerr was armed but decided not to use his gun uh, at the end of the year. The Old Bailey trial, not surprisingly, yielded lengthy penal servitude sentences in April 77 for the fraudsters. But then Harry Benson and William Kerr decided to present their claims of corruption amongst the Scotland Yard detectives in an attempt to reduce their own sentences. In July 1877, Michael John, in reality, and in cartoon character there, Druskovich and Palmer were arrested by uh, Superintendent Williamson, whilst the solicitor associated with the fraudsters called Edward Froggart was arrested by Clark. All were charged with perverting the course of justice, and the case became a national sensation. There have been examples of police corruption before, but none involving so many senior and well-known officers. As evidence provided by Kerr and Benson progressed during the Bow Street Magistrates hearing, Clark also became implicated by the two fraudsters. Both Benson and Kerr stated that Clark had taken bribes from them, and Clark's earlier correspondence with William Waters and his visits to and correspondence with Benson in the Isle of Wight 
when Benson was using the alias Young, were also cast in a sinister light. And Clark started to produce detailed written reports for the Treasury Solicitor's Office countering the allegations against him. However, on August the 29th, 1877, the Government Law Officers, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General wrote to the Home Secretary, and I quote, We've come to the conclusion that Inspector Clark ought to be charged along with the men now in custody. In our view, the prosecution which has been instituted would probably be prejudicially affected unless such charge against Clark is preferred at once. It seems that the law officers either thought there was sufficient evidence against Clark for him to be charged, or possibly that they thought that the case against the others might be undermined if Clark was not arrested. It was known that Michael John's defence counsel was planning to call Clark as a defence witness. The law officers, of course, knew at the time that if Clark was arrested, he would not be allowed to give evidence or to be used as a defence witness in the case. And that was the legal position at that particular time. Uh, despite the law officer's recommendation, the prosecution, the permanent secretary at the Home Office, counselled some further thought before Clark was arrested. As the case against Clark was based solely on the uncorroborated evidence of two convicts was how they viewed it. Nonetheless, Clark was arrested on the morning of 8th September by Williamson. It is said that Williamson cried. The day that Clark would otherwise have been called as a defense witness by Montague Williams um, for his client, Michael John. Clark, unlike the, his colleagues, was allowed bail. And another of my great-great-grandfathers, Henry Payne, was a guarantor of that. On 13th of September, the Treasury Council, Harry Poland, presented the prosecution case against Clark. Usually the two men worked together on the same side in court. Clark employed a leading London solicitor, George Lewis, to represent him. And Lewis felt sufficiently bullish to call several defence witnesses on Clark's behalf in the hope of getting the case against him dismissed at the magistrate's court. But like the other accused men, he was uh, nonetheless committed for trial at the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey trial of the detectives, including George Clark, at the now more venerable age, started on the 24th of October and concluded on 20th of November. At its time, it was the longest criminal case that had been heard at the Old Bailey. Clark's case was helped by a strong legal team, including his solicitor, George Lewis, uh, top right, and his defence counsel, bottom right, no relative, uh, Edward Clark, who was no relative of Clark, but an up-and-coming young barrister. Clark's substantial number of defence witnesses, including his two daughters, my great-grandmother Emily being one on the left, and Police Commissioner Henderson, who gave evidence on behalf of Clark as a defence witness. 
uh, Williamson was used as a witness for the prosecution, but his evidence was essentially helpful to Clark's cause. And when the jury returned to the, deliver their verdict, four of the five accused were found guilty, and each was sentenced to two years hard labour. Clark was the only one acquitted. All the national and regional newspapers reported Clark's acquittal, and I quote from the Daily Telegraph. The words not guilty were scarcely uttered before a burst of cheering rang through the court. Not from one corner, not from gallery alone, not merely the delighted relief of friends, but a sudden strong sympathetic cheer. Instantly, Clark appreciated his position, fell back from the, back from the rank with a smile on his face. He looked young again and beamed as he stood back with folded arms, almost a free man. So what happened next? Firstly, all remaining charges on the indictment against Clark were dropped and he was reinstated with full pay by Commissioner Henderson. However, when the Home Secretary uh, of the day heard that Clark had been reinstated, he insisted on Clark's retirement. Clark by then was 59. Innocent or guilty, Clark had become a political liability and was, however, innocent or guilty, was sacrificed. He received a pension but his legal costs were never paid, despite his written request for such, shown on the left there. So what were the repercussions of the trial for the police and the detective department? Well, before the trial itself, in August 1877, the Home Secretary had appointed a departmental commission into the state of uh, and discipline and organization of the detective force in the Metropolitan Police. The eventual outcome of this report was not as simplistically linked, I think, to the fallout from the trial of the detectives as most histories of the Metropolitan Police suggest. Indeed, little reference, you can find little reference in the report to the personalities and events involved in the corruption trial. Clark was mentioned only twi twice in the minutes of evidence, and on both occasions in a positive light, including uh, the comment that Williamson made about him shown on this slide which says Clark is a man of about as much shrewd common sense as any man in London and is quite as able to track out anybody. It's his native gift. He's a very unusual article. The main recommendation that stands out in the report was that there should be an amalgamation of all its de the detective bodies into one force and they should be separated from uniform branch and placed under officers of their own. Something that Williamson had been saying since 1869, at least. And on 6 of March 1878, a young barrister, Howard Vincent, was appointed Director of Criminal Investigations, having previously taken the initiative to produce a report on the police system and crime detection in Paris. And once appointed, most of the changes arranged in the reorganisation of the detectives took place through direct dialogue between Vincent and the Home Secretary, with Henderson scarcely being consulted. As a consequence, CID was now established. And my final slide, Clark retired on the 4th of January 1878, age 59. Um, he soon set up a private inquiry agency with his son, Harry. I haven't found any evidence that he offered his services during the Ripper investigations, though Michael John certainly did. 
George Clark died in January 1891. However, his name lived on for a few years more as his son continued to operate under the business name George Clark's Detective and Inquiry Agency. Business card, bottom right. So his name can't have been bad for business. However, Clark's memory lives on in most of the literature as the probably corrupt but lucky individual who escaped a prison sentence. And I think this was essentially the verdict of a book written by George Dilnot 50 years later in 1928, a book which displayed no detailed knowledge of Clark's uh, extensive career and confined its analysis to the trial itself. So, do you think Clark was guilty or innocent? I'm personally happy for you to reach your own conclusions, but please read my book first. <laughs> <laughs> And that was Chris Payne with The Chieftain. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Herbologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all of the talks, and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper East End and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook pages, so you can find out a lot of information there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian true crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community and you, our listeners. And so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.